Aloha Kako. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Boy, Hawaii's doing everything it can to get tourism back. At the same time, finding other economic engines has never seemed more important. Chris Lee has been incubating a local digital media industry at the University of Hawaii for almost 20 years. Lee once the head of Columbia TriStar Studios, returned to Hawaii in 2002 to start the film school at UH Manoa. Currently, he's the founder and director of the Academy for Creative Media System at the University of Hawaii. Since the demise of sugar and pineapple, we've had one economic export, and that's our kids. That has been our major export. And now we have to give people a reason to come back. I've continued to believe that the film and television and now the streaming content industry is really our way out of our dependence on the service industry on tourism. I'm very excited that we're starting to see production come back to Hawaii. Nobody is safer than these network and studio shows. They have COVID uh, compliance supervisors following them all over the place. You're risking millions of dollars on a production and it can all come to a halt if you, know, you lose one of your actors or something. So I don't think there's any safer business in the world, quite frankly, than, than production. How big could this be, really, Chris? You've had a chance to really survey the landscape. Developing channels for people into the industry is always so important. We the thing I'm most proud of is the number of our graduates who have stayed here in Hawaii in, in media jobs. We have kids who are the social media director for BMW. They're the in-house videographers for restaurants. You know, the way things are marketed, the way people find out about things, you know, it's, it's all about a viral situation. It's not about watching television. I mean, kids say they don't even have television. <laughs> I know. Are they in the economy here? Yes. But we're, you know, we still have our challenges. You know, we lack infrastructure. We don't really have studio space. And that's really what's the game changer for us. You know, we're probably the most expensive place to shoot in the world. <laughs> you know, our isolation, everything like that. So we're just trying to get even with, you know, other places that are our competition, which primarily to me are New Zealand, Australia. When you have a movie come here like Jumanji or Pirates of the Caribbean or even Jurassic Park, they can come here and shoot our beaches and jungles, but they can't do their interiors. So for that, they have to leave. And it's a very expensive prospect to move a company of that size, bring it in, set up, shoot, and then go off to London or... Los Angeles or Louisiana, or wherever you can find stage space. So until we get stage space, we're kind of working with a very small fishbowl. And I think it's basically artificially kept us from growing to what really should be at least a billion dollar a year business and beyond. Would this studio space have to be year round? You know, in the past, people have used all kinds of spaces here. At one stage, it was 5.0 for the last eight years or so. It was lost for eight years before that. Now it's Magnum. But if you had a purpose-built space, and I'm talking about something that's roughly 30 acres and hundreds of thousands of square feet of stage space. That's where you can actually shoot any of these big action movies and stuff. You know, Georgia has five studios. The biggest one is 700 acres. That's where they do all the Marvel movies. And I think we have an advantage right now because of COVID, because we are a relatively safe place to go, the way that New Zealand is, the way other destinations are proving to be. It's a huge opportunity, and our kids are really good at this. When I first came home, where I went out to visit was the YNIC writers in Candy Suiso, and this cohort of talented, creative kids set international gold standards for production. So I have no doubt in the innate talent of our kids, and I want to give them a reason to not leave. I'm really excited about our new building. It pretty much has everything I could ever want in a student production facility. Really? I just looked at one. It was the Flying Squirrel. Oh, okay. It was on your, the ACM website. The Flying Squirrel game, yes. So that's an example of at the Manoa campus, what we do is we combine um, half ACM kids and half ICS kids. So you marry the coders with the designers and the storytellers. It's called computational media. And computational media is this nexus between storytelling and science and art. And so a lot of what we're pursuing now, thanks to uh, some of the professors that we work with in engineering and also in, in ICS, as I mentioned, is we're able to sort of move in that direction and move the university in that direction uh, in terms of uh, the kind of output that we're seeing. 
what is that really? I, I don't know how, what, uh, what would that be? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We're, we're offering the first certificate at Manoa and it's a combination of ACM, ICS, electro engineering and theater and dance. It's really about how you tell stories in the 21st century and you really require the marriage of all of that. It's really interesting how much things have changed both in production and in platforms. Very fortunate to work with people like uh, Professor Jason Lee at UH Manoa in ICS, computer science, in creating the, what's called the Lava Lab there, which is basically virtual reality, mixed reality, alternative reality, altered reality. How do you categorize that media? It's like experiential media or something like that. Yeah, what's the it is. In that? Um, you know, it's, it's immersive, it's a different kind of storytelling. You know, there were a lot of hopes for VR in particular a few years ago. Um, people discovered, though, that very few people can wear those glasses for a right. period of time. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it hasn't been used in all kinds of other applications, aside from gaming. But, you know, they use it for virtual surgery. So we're really excited about being able to push in all kinds of directions. Can you help describe, Chris, what would these jobs be like? Some of our students have pursued traditional filmmaking jobs, you know, directors like Tai Sanga. A lot of them are on sets, but a lot of them have started their own companies. They have their own production companies. You've seen this transformation in terms of marketing where a lot of companies are not relying on the big agencies to be the ones that, you know, deliver their commercials and everything. Although we have students that work for places like Anthology Group. Instead, they're being hired directly by individual places to be the in-house videographer, the editor. Who doesn't want to hire somebody, whether you're at a restaurant or a hotel or a car dealership, to create like an app for your business to put on people's smartphones? It's easy for us to see a big thing like pineapple, sugar, tourism. Yeah. filling a gap, but it's very difficult to picture this, Chris. Can you help? Well, I don't know why it should be difficult because we've been shooting movies here since Thomas Edison sent his photographers in 1906 or 1908. And it has been a consistent, steady performer for our islands ever since. It's a natural for us. And it's also something that we do have something to offer that other places can't offer. Our location is a huge advantage. You can talk to China starting at 3 p.m. and it's their morning and it's still only 6 p.m. on the West Coast and it's only 9 p.m. on the East Coast. You can get a lot of business done that way. But as I said, we've been hobbled by the lack of infrastructure and we sort of hobbled ourselves when we decided to cap our incentives, which are good. They're not as high as Georgia's. I think they're sensible and I think they've delivered over and over again for us. You know, one of the other things that people are talking a lot about in the industry now, if you've seen a show called The Mandalorian, which is on Disney+, Plus, The Lion King remake or the live action uh, Jungle Book and stuff, there's a new kind of technology. Sometimes they call it stagecraft. Sometimes they call it Unreal Engine. It's basically virtual production. It's a combination of gaming technology and traditional visual effects from the movie industry, but it works in sort of real time so that you're performing against real locations. Why it's important for us to get into this game is because these virtual sets, which is what they are, they're virtual sets, are really starting to take over the business. The second reason we need to get into the stage business is because they're not gonna have to come here at all in the future. They'll just be able to put it up on, a, on one of these walls when they want to. So, you know, when people talk about how do we diversify the economy, this to me is like low hanging fruit. It's there for us to pick if we want to pursue it. And getting this human capital infrastructure thing built up through the different schools and the ACMB and all these campuses. You know, we have kids, we have a Kauai program now and they all worked on Jungle Book and Maui's now got a program that's up and running. Big Island has two programs going at UH Hilo and also at Hawaii CC Hilo, the community college. And then of course, KCC has always had a really good animation program. LCC has had that digital media and TV pro since before I started ACM. Wimber Community College is pumping out some great young documentary filmmakers in particular. It's great to be able to have all these different campuses with their different focuses to recognize the scope and breadth of this industry, which a big part of doing this building out at West Oahu was making it as future-proof as possible. We've added esports to it because esports is the biggest First of all, it's the only sports people are playing for the most part because there's no physical <laughs> contact. But it's a huge driver both for enrollment and for marketing of campuses. Those are much larger industries than traditional film. If you look across 
the globe, the centers of production outside of Hollywood are all based on individuals who said, I'm going to make my movies here. If you're in New York, obviously it was Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee. It's really important to invest in your own filmmakers. And, you know, film is at a very fascinating crossroad if you think of film as a traditional theatrical experience because nobody wants to go to movie theaters anymore. As with so many things, this pandemic has accelerated a number of changes that were sort of bubbling in the industry for a long time. Going back 20 years, everybody said, you need a film school, you need a film school. And I was like, well, you know, film is a dying medium. <laughs> but storytelling will always be with us. It's just it's going to take different forms. Chris Lee is the founder and director of the Academy for Creative Media System at the University of Hawaii. are definite signs of life in Hawaii's film industry. Season 3 of Magnum P.I. launched this week here on Oahu. There's a Netflix feature filming here too, a series on Maui, and an ocean-themed reality show shooting on Hawaii Island. Importantly, the film industry has published a comprehensive plan, a way forward for production during this pandemic. It's intended to ensure the safety of workers, the surrounding community, and of course, investors. The plan involves strict protocols that State Film Commissioner Donnie Dawson says could be a model for other industries. She says it's no surprise that the film industry is back as Hawaii struggles to recover. We have a hundred year plus history of film production in the Hawaiian Islands. And in that time, hundreds of film productions have come to Hawaii and had really incredible experiences here. And it's a very word of mouth industry. They go back to their friends who are producers for another studio or for another production company and they share their good stories about how successful the production was in the Hawaiian Islands. And it's also because our geographic proximity to Los Angeles is key. I mean, we are a five-hour plane ride away from Los Angeles, which means that people can come out here, they can work, they can bring their families out to eat in our best restaurants, to stay in our best hotels, to bring their families out and experience the best of Hawaii. It's a more efficient use of our resources. The idea of it being to achieve and maintain a COVID-safe environment that is not going to pose a major risk to community. And the reason why it's so important is that the visitor industry right now is suffering greatly. And that is why we have pulled together the visitor industry, the labor unions that, that represent those hotel workers, to work in partnership with the film industry unions to provide a safe way forward for not just the film productions, but for the hotel industry. And we don't want to confuse the idea of a working production with this concept of a resort bubble. They are apples and oranges completely. What the, 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 the public uh, in Hawaii really wants to know and feel good about is that the highest level of safety precautions are being taken. The highest level of safety precautions are being taken and the medical resources of our communities are not being taxed or, or, or put in jeopardy. What are layoffs like in the industry right now? They're significant, just like with the hotel industry. And, and, and the point to be made there is that this partnership between film production and hotel industry is key. We are talking tens of thousands of people that are out of work if you combine hotel workers and the film workers. How much and of a dent could the film industry make? And it could make a significant dent, potentially get thousands of hotel workers back to work. Film productions need hotels to quarantine in, and in some cases to operate out of. Once these productions start 
returning at a steady clip, we are going to start to see more and more hotel workers re-engaged, more and more local production workers re-engaged. Do you think we are going to have productions lining Absolutely. up to Absolutely. There are between five to seven major productions either looking at Hawaii or are already engaging with Hawaii to get back to work in the film industry and a lot of much smaller productions that may be forming. You're not gonna see like the big monster tentpole productions with hundreds and hundreds of extras because it's all gonna be streamlined to lessen that footprint and make it easier for productions to really control that safe zone environment. So there's um, always CGI. There's always CGI. That is a really important point. But like these hybrid productions, I mean, you'll see situations where a national commercial may hire our local people, but then they'll have the director not even being physically present in Hawaii. And the market must be huge right now, right? With everybody at home streaming, they got to stream something 20 that, hours That's a day. probably the most key question in all this time is that content is king. Right now, people are working from home, they are staying at home, and there has never been a higher demand for content. We've got to create the content. And that brings it around full circle to the whole idea that production has to safely take place in order to create the content that people are demanding. I go back to the first big film production that came in here after everything stopped post 9-11, close to 20 years ago. And you had one major Hollywood production, a Bruce Willis film that came in here. And they immediately contributed to 80,000 room nights at a, at, a, at a specific hotel and hundreds of local vendors who had to provide goods and services to in order for the production to take place in the islands when no one was traveling. No one was traveling because of 9-11. So now we fast forward 20 years to this very challenging pandemic. And you are going to see the film industry able to provide that same kind of economic rejuvenation I'm looking forward to the day when we have another conversation, you and I, and we are looking back on those success stories, looking back on a much more hopeful Hawaiian Islands and people of Hawaii who are grateful to an industry for being able to stand in the gap for tourism right now. Donnie Dawson is Hawaii's film commissioner. She says a major network will be shooting on Maui all of October and a Doogie Hauser MD reboot for Disney Plus called Doogie Kamealoha MD will be shooting here in late November. Chris Lee says he's been working on a project the last six months that should be announced soon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Philip Goldberg, author of Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about tools to cultivate calm, clarity, and courage. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. I will say those digital experiences on the Honolulu Museum website are great. Right now, the Honolulu City Council's Planning, Zoning, and Housing Committee meeting is probably deep into testimony. It's all virtual, of course. 
They're hearing changes to a proposal for an affordable housing development in Kailua, and this is the final step before a full council vote next week. Opponents to the plan say property owners everywhere have a stake in that decision. I thought you might like to hear the issues from thoughtful voices in a neighborhood undergoing tremendous change. I was thinking about that. How has it changed? We get painted with the broad brush of being a rich enclave. Donna Wong and her husband moved to Kailua because it was close to where he grew up in Waimanalo. We bought it because it was convenient to Waimanalo and was a good place to raise kids, close to school, good community, and then it got rich around us. Yeah, how has that changed the life of people like you who were living there before? Well, first of all, it's escalated the prices of homes because people from all over the world can afford to and want to buy in Kailua. People would have a room over their garage or an extra room and the kid would go off to college and they'd rent it out to a single person or a married couple. They're part of the community. Wong says vacation rentals changed that, among a myriad of other changes that have swept one sleepy Kailua town. People that are making their living in Hawaii have to be able to afford places to live, and they need to be able to build up that equity so that they can afford to retire here, too. Keith Webster chairs the Housing Task Force for Faith Action, a community group that's been working on affordable housing for 25 years, primarily on policy. This is exactly the kind of development that we're trying to make possible. The proposed Kawainui Street affordable housing development consists of 73 apartments in a four-story building at the corner of Kawainui and Oneava. Kailua two bedrooms now rent for eighteen to thirty-five hundred a month. In the new development, two bedrooms would run twelve to fifteen hundred dollars less than that. I do not oppose affordable housing, but I oppose that two hundred one nature law. Tony Pedro lives next door to the proposed development. She and other neighbors are concerned about traffic, parking, character of the neighborhood, and effects on their solar panels. If this project is approved in a residentially zoned area, it then will set a precedent that it can be done in another residential area, maybe near you. I've mentioned to Ikaika Anderson at least two times, why don't we form an advisory council where we can actually get behind the developer and make it a real community effort where everybody's proud of it. Hawaii's 201H38 provision was created to encourage affordable housing. The Kawainui project is seeking height and density exceptions to move forward on residentially zoned land. Donna Wong chairs the Neighborhood Board Planning Committee, which completed the updated Ko'olaupoku Sustainable Communities Plan in 2018. This was part of an island-wide visioning effort by the Department of Planning and Permitting. My committee worked for at least two years on the plan. Wong says they received no instructions to provide for affordable housing. If you use that as a rationale against the current project, you can use that against every project. Well, then put that back on DPP, because if they wanted affordable housing, they're the ones that approved and put together and finalized the plan. Do you think affordable housing is important for Kailua? I think housing that is affordable is important for Kailua. Kailua resident and business owner Brian Canavari was part of the Kailua Urban Design Task Force. He opposes the 73-unit development at the edge of a residential neighborhood. This looks like an apartment building. It acts like an apartment building. It is an apartment building. It is a zoning change. The 201H statute does provide the opportunity for targeted discussions about affordable housing involving specific parcels. I have a list of all of the parcels that have come up for sale in the last five years. They're all either in the flood zone or too small or extremely expensive. Makani Maeva lives and works in Kailua. Her company, Ahe Group, an affordable housing developer, bought the parcel on Kawainui Street in April. The parcel is zoned R5 residential. It is adjacent to commercial uses across the street. So what we're taking is this theory and trying to make it a reality, and that's the problem with affordable housing. Everybody supports it in theory. In her testimony, Kailua Senator Laura Thielen says she's listened to constituents and decided to support the project. She cited four failed attempts to build affordable housing as factors in her decision. The last affordable project built in Kailua was Kupuna Housing 28 years ago. 
Kailua City Council member Ikaika Anderson has not been available for comment. He's resigned from the council effective after the full council meeting on September 23rd. The Kauai Nui Street Apartments vote is scheduled for that day. Have you stayed in touch with your favorite musicians through the ravages of this pandemic? So great to hear the Casimero's there, right? Well, many of these musicians have been trying to reach you. So there have been recorded street performances, broadcasts from shuttered theaters, and living room live sessions, too. Pianist Jonathan Korth leads the Honolulu Chamber Music Society. Their goal is connecting you to mind-opening classical performances for free to kick off their 21 season. They're taking advantage of technology to bring great artists right to you. In addition to getting to know the artists better, which I think is my favorite part of, of these online presentations, we're able to offer programming that we can't normally offer. So I think our first program featured 12 or 13 different artists. Our, our next program features 13 artists. Um, and the, the first piece is a Brandenburg concerto. And then there's a um, concerto for violin, piano, and string quartet. Chasson trying to recreate the idea of a Baroque Brandenburg concerto in a modern setting. the stage for listening to this incredibly dreamy and atmospheric piece. I think it's, it's Chasson going back to the Baroque. The, the Baroque period was a highlight of French music history. Baroque, you're talking originally about harpsichords and ornamentation. Fourteen. You'll hear in, in movements like the second movement, the Sicilian, where it, it's, it's really highly influenced by, by these Baroque elements. Actually throughout, you'll hear these ideas but they're mixed with this just like creamy, beautiful French romantic style. And it's only six players, but it feels bigger. This would be such a great experience for people, really. And it contrasts with the other piece you chose for this morning, the Kalish, the one that uh, Gilbert Kalish is playing, the Brahms. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Gilbert Kalish will be featured on our October concert. I've got a personal connection I should probably divulge with him. I studied with him for five years. I'm a huge fan. He's a, a musician's pianist, someone who, who puts music above himself, is humble to the nth degree, and, and tries to highlight whatever he thinks he can in, in both the music and the other people he plays with. This Brahms Quartet, it's epic. It's, it's one of the best pieces of chamber music ever written, in my opinion. I chose a little bit of the first movement just so you can kind of hear the drama of it. If you want a symphonic work boiled down for four players where everyone has to put 100% of their soul into the piece to really make it work, it's, it's this kind of piece. It's, it's an awesome, awesome piece of chamber music. he require that with the score? Yeah, I think first it's the way he's writing, structurally, but also with color. He tries to create such big tapestry that you kind of start to think symphonically in that sense. But also it's the way he uses the piano. He uses the piano with all the power and all the color he can kind of justify from it. And so you've got these three string players who are, who are working really, really hard. There are times where he kind of pits the piano against the strings. And again, I think that's really effective in creating this dramatic effect. be a grand piece to play. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even also the process of working on them, because I think there's so many interesting things to discuss with your fellow artists. The inside. It's never clear, right? There's always choices. Like I said about structure, that 
you have to maintain, I think, certain parameters for that. And, and people might have different ideas about how to do that. But then within that, the, the little details, that's where it gets really interesting. You know, what sort of color are we going to go for? Where are we going to use Roboto versus not just to hold the structure? Not as much discussion like that for Mozart, you know, the last piece you've chosen for us? Yeah, you know, it's, hmm, I think there's a, a, a slightly more accepted style when you play Mozart, so it, it's, it's a little bit easier to get on the same page with everyone and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I think that the thing with Mozart is, is you're always tiptoeing the line of, I, I want to say something profound through the incredible music he's prepared but not, um, not push the boundaries of that high classical style too far. So that's, that's kind of always the, the juggling position I think we're in. Well, I think it's, it's very easy to have Mozart sound like Beethoven or Schubert or you know, like, like a little bit later than, than maybe is written. And I think for someone like me, I tend to use my excitement and my passion in my playing often. It's very easy for me to overplay Mozart in some ways. So I'm always kind of walking that line of how do I keep the high classical style while still you got to keep that high classical style, but, but, but still emote in the way you want. I guess that's a better way to say it. You know, when I listen to this music, I, I wonder, is he maybe talking about feelings we don't feel as much or at all these days? Oh, wow. Jonathan. He's such an interesting character because I think he's introduced in a musical history era where I think he pushes the boundaries as much as he could, both as a person and as a musician. But he, 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 if he'd been in, written in a different area, he would have pushed them so much farther. You know what, listening to it is going to be a lot more fun after this conference. Oh, thank you. You know, the, the D minor concerto, I should just say, is, is one of his more dramatic concertos. He wrote 27 piano concertos. There's at least two and I think maybe three minor concertos in all of those 27. And D minor generally is a key where Mozart kind of pours out his soul. Jonathan Korth, pianist, professor at UH Manoa, and president of the Honolulu Chamber Music Series. Classical musicians in Hawaii make a living usually by combining teaching and performing. With all performances canceled, many have had a tough time securing unemployment insurance. The Hawaii Symphony has continued salaries for its musicians in the orchestra, and now the symphony musicians are launching the Sounds of Resilience concert series, live streamed from the Hawaii Theater Center. This uh, concert series, Sounds of Resilience, premieres next Saturday, September 26th. New work in a galaxy of strings. We're listening to the Hawaii Symphony right now. We'll post a link with this story. You can stream it like your own soundtrack to cocktails and dinner. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Life, serving Oahu, Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island of Hawaii. Listings and information at hawaiilife.com. The show with the most Emmy nominations, 26 of them, is the HBO series Watchmen. On the next Fresh Air, Terry Gross speaks with one of the writers, Cord Jefferson, who's nominated for writing episode six. The series combines elements of sci-fi, time travel, superhero comics, and the all-too-true history of racism in the U.S. Cord Jefferson also wrote for Succession. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu with a message to stay safe and to protect one another and oneself, committed to the safety of ohana and community. Kahalaresort.com. In the same way musicians make a living by teaching and performing, many visual artists combine teaching and selling their artwork. Printmaker Duncan Dempster is one of those people. He's also executive director of Honolulu Printmakers, a 92-year-old community organization. 
They've had their presses in an active and well-run studio at the Honolulu Museum of Art School at Linakona since 1993. Dempster says, however, there are changes ahead. I just concluded my teaching career at, at UH. I've taught there for 20 years. I used to teach two classes every semester, so that was kind of how I make my living. I would teach part-time and I would run Honolulu Filmmakers part-time. A lot of us make our living partially by teaching. It's the same thing at the museum school. The museum school is closed. They can't offer classes now and it'll be at least a year before they're up and running again with classes. And they employ tons of artists part-time to teach those classes. All those folks are missing that income. And you know, that income is hard to use as a basis for unemployment. So we're kind of shut down again, and I'm not sure what the next steps are, but from the Honolulu Printmakers perspective, we have to find ways to keep our membership engaged. Directly on the heels of the museum closing once again, you came out with that search for a new location. Yeah, Why? we have been informed by the museum that we are not a part of the future vision for the museum school at Linicona. What's your time limit at the museum? Well, they said to expect pretty heavy work to begin in October or November. So we've got a couple months, basically, to find a, at least an interim solution. Uh, and, and like I said, I prefer not to move those presses more than once. But if we have to, we have to. So right now, we're actually, in addition to kind of talking to people that know about real estate and people who have buildings, et cetera. We're talking to our members and friends about what they envision this new studio being. I see your community really expanding in the direction that uh, I felt was happening at the Entrepreneur Sandbox. I mean, there's definitely some linkages there for sure. You can draw a straight line from Gutenberg's press and his movable type to the internet, essentially. So in that sense, there's a linkage with what's going on at Sandbox, for instance. You know, the other linkage, honestly, is we are essentially a shared co-working environment in the same way that Box Jelly and Sandbox run by Box Jelly. In a way, it's, it's a similar kind of culture, right? A communal shared environment or a collaborative print studio. It sounded like something possibly the city might like to get behind. I know you were talking with some people about Chinatown Gateway, second floor there. Hate to get up to the second floor with your presses, but... Yeah, so we have looked at a variety of spaces, including a space the city owns right there on Nuwanu and Hotel. They wanted to do a month-to-month -month license, and that, that's just a no-go for us. We were talking about going in there and investing serious sweat equity, as well as real money, to retrofit what was essentially office space into studio space. I would really like two to 3,000 square feet in which we could establish this community access art studio essentially a co-working space for artists and creative people. If we had more space, like three, four, or 5,000 square feet, we could develop an exhibition space that could serve the larger community on a rotating basis. We could nurture and support professional development and enterprise endeavors by artists. We could have a smaller gallery shop or a place where people could develop creative ideas into products. You know, printmaking does dovetail nicely with sort of commercial production of product. There's a lot of young artists who could get started in print and develop a small business around that. And we, we have members like that. We have members that run a small business based on silkscreen printing, for instance. Really great. You know, how much can printmakers afford to pay in rent? You know, we have a budget. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable sharing that. I think it would depend on the nature of the space. There might be a, a situation, for instance, where we could, I hate to use this term, but monetize a space to the point where we could afford $3,500 or, or $4,000 a month in rent. I consider that quite high, and it would require us to be utilizing you know, every square foot of the space to run classes and workshops and have people selling their work and subletting space to individual artists, that sort of thing. We're hoping to find someone or some entity that wants to invest a little in us by helping us out with the, with the overhead. What's in it for the landlord is what I'm really looking for here. We would bring sort of a ready-made element of community action and development. We've got all those members. I mean, we're talking hundreds of people that we can draw to see our, our programming, essentially. So someone with a space or a building might be interested in having that space activated. You don't want to leave buildings empty for too long. 
instead of starting from scratch, trying to activate a space, for instance, we're sort of like ready to go a la carte turnkey. You can bring in this, this community and have sort of an active arts and culture presence in your space or your neighborhood or your development or whatever it may be. And we were talking about being kind of a long-term anchor tenant in what hopefully will still be a new arts hub for downtown. So the city and others, including the state, have really got to think about what's on the line for arts organizations. We're willing to do the work to kind of revitalize an area like Chinatown, for instance, and the arts can do that, but we've got to have some assurance. Maybe things have changed for them and they realize they've got to take a chance and uh, offer some assurance that we could occupy a space for at least a few years. We need at least, you know, three, four, preferably five-year lease if we're going to actually do something significant. Duncan Dempster is executive director of Honolulu Printmakers. Their annual print and book fair last November was at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox, and they're contemplating avenues for this year's fair. Some good news now for artists, musicians, performers on Oahu. The Mayor's Office on Culture and Arts met yesterday, and there's word that Mayor Caldwell is releasing $10 million in COVID aid for the arts. It appears there'll be two phases, one for individuals and small groups, another for large organizations. Uncertain what types of arts will be covered as yet, details will be coming October 1st. We'll post a link to the city's arts website. raised on Kauai, Mark Oyama had a passion for fishing, spent a lot of time on his uncle's farm, and raised livestock in 4-H. Cooking was kind of a natural. Oyama graduated from the Culinary Institute on Oahu, then he headed to the East Coast for some restaurant experience. In 1991, Oyama was kind of waiting for the lodge season to open in Alaska, so he was back on Kauai doing plumbing jobs with his dad. A friend asked if he'd like to cater a party. He did. It went well, very well. He did another, and the whole thing kind of snowballed. Before long, Oyama was teaching at Kauai Community College, catering wildly on the side, and someone asked if he'd like to open a restaurant. The location was the new, at that time, Puhi Industrial Park right across the college. So Oyama said, eh, he'd give it a try. It was an empty shell. I had to break the concrete in there. You know, every afternoon from work, I'd go and work in there too late at night. Their friends would come and help me in the afternoons and whatnot. And um, it ended up, you know, after we finished, we'd have a few beers. And then it came known to um, everybody was saying, hey, where are you going to go? Oh, we're going to go Mark Space, go help him out and have some few beers after that. So the name stuck. We're going to go, we're going Mark Space. So that's why we ended up naming it Mark Space after that. <laughs> what kind of food? What do people um, want? Well, we kept the menu simple for Mark Space, things I grew up with that I enjoyed. So like locomocos and terry beef and I wanted a simple, small menu, and I wanted to do specials every day. When I do catering, I bring in a case of something, and I can't use it up, so I can use the other products over there to run specials, so that's why I decided to do it that way. But I ended up doing a fresh fish special every day, and that took off. We always did salad special every day, a nice entree salad, over 20 years ago. So, you know, when it was a little bit different concept and tried it, instead of cabbage on our products, we made our fried noodles instead. You know how you get your chinkatsu, and instead of putting cabbage, you put fried noodles underneath instead. <laughs> hey, Mark, tell us about the Kauai palette. How is it different from other places you've worked, even Oahu, maybe? It was a little bit more simple over here before. Now it's changing. Now they're getting more adventurous over here, the, the palette on, on Kauai. But Hawaii is so different from the mainland. When I worked up the mainland, especially the East Coast, um, you know, our palette in Hawaii is very strong, bold flavors. In the East Coast, it was very subtle, very light flavors. I used to work at a French restaurant up there. You know, they'd come over to my house and make dinner for them. And our style of cooking, you know, Asian-style foods. And they were blown away. They were like, man, you should open a restaurant up here. You know, the, the flavors up on the East Coast were so subtle, very light flavors. You know, where ours are bold and strong. And uh, 
now they're starting to change the way in the, on the mainland. Like now people are balancing flavors. We did it 30 years ago over here in Hawaii. But, and we actually grew up with that, with that type of concept. We never really talked about it, but our flavors always balanced. With the Asian cuisines that we learn how to you know, cook and whatnot, that's a concept that everybody's trying to follow now. So The time for bento is now, right? Well, yeah, because I'll take out, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I see some real nice upscale restaurants are doing bentos and um, we look at it, it's like, oh, that's the stuff we have in Hawaii for 30 years ago. <laughs> but I mean, you know. Ben said is again. But they make it more upscale and make it different, you know. <laughs> but Mark, so tell me what business was like. Like 2019 was flying, right, for business. Oh, tell yeah. me what that was like. Well, it was... When business is great, restaurants actually suffer when it's really good because we can't get employees. You know, it's hard to get workers at that time. But I mean, we had a lot of business. Catering was booming. I do a lot of destination weddings. So what happened to that business? There's nothing now. If we did have a full service event where we service it, we end up making like paid lunches over there. We got to prepack it and serve it because you can't do a buffet anymore. I've done weddings where the host charters a flight to fly everybody down. And it's like 200 people over here, you know. <laughs> oh, amazing okay. the type of events that we've had but for me I'd rather be safe and the people on the island be safe first than trying to you know get back to where we were how are your employees doing we're all trying to hang on you know we're not making money right now we're we're just scraping by I know how hard it is not to have medical insurance we had to cut some hours and they understood that you know I'm lucky I got great employees and they're really working hard you know, like my pastry chef, she's amazing. She's doing all kind of different things to um, bring business in. You know, what's funny because I was, I was surfing through, the, I think it was Facebook, I think, one day, and I seen this Korean garlic bread. Man, that thing looks so good. So I talked to my pastry chef. She researched it and she made it. And it was amazing. I think that day we put it out, we pre-ordered, we sold like 200 of them. We got another day coming up. They're expecting to serve like 600 of that now. It's addicting the taste of that bread. It's weird because it's sweet, but it's garlicky. With cream cheese in How there. How are going to fly to Kauai for this bread now? <laughs> yeah, we're trying to do what we can. And, um, and right now, you got to do something. We got to think outside the box and do something a little bit different now. It can't be status quo right now. But I mean, also, there's that about the industry. It's like being reduced to the very least that you do, which is like cook food and give it to people. But the whole <laughs> hospitality part of the business is gone. Yeah, it's... um. It's going to come back. It's going to be a while, but... Um. <laughs> yeah, it's going to take people with some experience applying it. And I know that you were on the Kauai Economic Development Board at one point. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's like, how can we use restaurants and egg as part of the reboot on this, Mark? Yeah, well, you know, we're lucky because um, on Kauai, Senator Kochi has been really instrumental in doing that. And, you know, we got a lot of land here, a lot of water. We just don't have enough farmers right now. We have a pilot program in Kauai where we're using a lot of local ingredients for all the schools and the hospitals. A lot of the cattle producers over here that slaughterhouses, they're um, actually selling a lot of ground beef to the schools now and the hospitals. So instead of shipping all the cattle out, especially now the shipping is, you know, it's not that lucrative. So there's a way of keeping out local beef in Hawaii. Yeah? The more demand you have, the more you can grow and the more quality products you end up having. You, you say you need farmers. Do you have enough farmland that, that could be used? We have so much farmland over here and so much water on the island. We got a lot of water and, and land over here. We just need more people to farm it and more food to stay on the island. Because we have a lot of farmers that actually export a lot of our products over here too. We might not pay the price that they're getting, so that's the hard part. But then again, you know, they get paid for the shipping and stuff. But you know, the economics works better for them than that. They get a premium price for it and they're shipping it out. Are people feeling pretty um, together on your island? I think so. I think um, we had hurricanes before and it brought the community back together. To be honest, I'd rather have a hurricane than this. <laughs> like when we had the hurricane, you know, the whole neighborhood got together. We had dinner together every night. We cooked together. We shared all our refrigerators and freezers because we had to use them up. We had get-togethers at our houses every, every night, you know, for, for dinner and got to know each other and we helped repair everybody's houses, you know. That was really nice that time, yeah. But this time here, you fish, you want to share some fish and stuff, but then just drop off and stay away from everybody, you know. <laughs> so it's not the same. Chef Mark Oyama of Mark's Place and Contemporary Flavors Catering on Kauai. Oh, you lucky Kauai guys. Lil, Jason, we got to try some of that Korean garlic bread. <laughs> All right, while we're talking about food, 
Honolulu's People's Open Markets are back starting tomorrow. Markets will be open from Kalihi to Hawaii Kai at Kamehameha Community Park, Kaumualii Street, Kalihi Valley Park, Salt Lake Municipal, and Hawaii Kai Park and Ride. That's tomorrow and Saturday. On Sunday, markets are open in Kapolei, Kunia, Waikele, and there are farmer's markets every day of the week all around the island. It's open-air shopping. And, you know, talk with a farmer you like. Often, you can give a call earlier in the week and arrange a simple pickup. Hours vary. There are different farmer's market programs, so we'll post a link for you. Sounds so good. And that is about it for this Aloha Friday. Thanks for joining us. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Call our talkback line, leave those comments, 808-792-8217. Email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Find me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. Visit the conversation page on the HPR website, too, to listen back to shows. The program's produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. This great theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. On Monday, Catherine Cruz will pick up the conversation again. And until then, let's take care of each other. Stay safe and happy Aloha Friday. (laughs) 